Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Join me at Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you'll get early access to uh, certain reviews for older movies. Uh, this month includes one for Dario Argento's Suspiria, as well as... Um, some quick take reviews on uh, movies I've seen for the first time during my uh, October horror movies. Um, I've also got plenty of other uh, content regarding my music as well as uh, thoughts on movies. It's at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Today, uh, we're going to celebrate the uh, birthday that has just passed for one of the most famous uh, filmmakers of all time that's not really... Uh, something that should be in dispute, uh, especially after the past 30, 40 years of uh, how his uh, legacy has grown through uh, retrospective uh, consideration of his work, as well as a very popular and Oscar-winning biopic by Tim Burton, is the work of Edward D. Wood Jr. And I'm joined today by a couple friends to discuss, um, we're going to talk about the Tim Burton film, but we also, I want to focus a little bit more on um, Ed Wood's uh, filmography, which includes Glenn Glenda, Plan 9 from Outer Sp Space, and Bride of the Monsters. I'm pleased to be joined by uh, Matthew and Bailey Timms. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. And shameless plug for Operation BSU, which I also occasionally appear on <laughs> so <Shameless>. in <laughs> so in 2005 um a uh, chain of stores uh was closing down uh called media play was basically uh the equivalent of i guess you could say like second and charles right now where they had like movies and music and uh books and all of that stuff and uh, they had all of their uh, inventory on discount. Well, for Christmas that year, my mother got me a box set that I was not expecting uh, as a result of these deals. It was an Ed Wood box set, which included Glenn or Glenda, Jailbait, Bride of the Monster, Night of the Ghouls, and Plan 9 from Outer Space. It was between that and a film noir box set, and I'm glad she made the choice she did. Um, not just because of the fact that by this point it was long time a big fan of the uh, Tim Burton biopic with Johnny Depp on Ed Wood, but um, just I, I was curious, I was excited to actually see the films themselves. And I have gone through all of those uh, just watching them Clean, no riff tracks or mystery science theater or anything like that. Uh, over the years, you can see those reviews on Sonic Cinema. Um, when we get before we get into this discussion, uh, I would like to have Matt and uh, Bailey again to what what drew them to Ed Wood and uh, his his films. Uh, was it the the Tim Burton film? Was it just? Uh, finding out about them and seeing them outright and uh, just sort of get your histories with Ed Wood. So uh, for me, it was kind of interesting because uh, 
kind of like with the with the David Lynch discussion we've had previously. At first, I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. I saw a couple of his movies on TV late night. I saw him on MST3K, and I knew this reputation about this goofy guy who made bad movies, and I didn't really get it. And it was partially the Church of Edwood, reading their stuff and kind of being amused by it. Mm-hmm. And it was the biopic that kind of all made it click. And I started to realize that, yeah, these movies are bad. Sure, they're poorly made and whatever else. And it's funny to watch the tombstones fall over. But there's something about his passion and how much of himself he put into it that really fascinated me. And, of course, that's what won me over, is Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, passion and originality and wanting it so badly you didn't necessarily care. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I came to Edward a little bit um, more by necessity than design. Um, we couldn't afford cable, so occasionally you'd pop on um, one of the late night showings, and you'd see Plan Nine pop up, or mm-hmm. um, never Glenn or Glenda, you know, nothing, yeah. no, nothing controversial. <laughs> but um, it all it came twofold because in high school I finally had Plan Nine explained. I had a teacher that an uh, AP English that said that for Halloween every year we would watch Plan 9 from Outer Space. And (laughs) if you left to go to the restroom, the movie would be paused until you returned. (laughs) If we didn't get to watch most of the movie during the period, we would start over the next day. Yeah. There was no way you could avoid seeing any part of this this horrible <laughs> film and he would pop in with commentary it was before any of the you know the high schoolers had really been exposed to MST 3k mm-hmm. so it was this great experience of being in a class full of my friends watching this horrible movie being allowed to talk during a movie that made me go maybe I should investigate what this guy's up to because it's bringing my friends together, and then I kind of fell in love with the the goodness and the badness. Mm-hmm. I've also been a full moon fan for oh. forever and trauma and things like that. So bad movies were already kind of in my purview. <laughs> well, there's something about that that I want to talk about more, sort of in generally. Uh, okay. That I yeah. kind of love the independent spirit that today you see that with trauma, you see that with full moon. I love that idea of I'm going to make what I want to make and let's hope it sells, <laughs> you know, and um, I, I love uh, that Lloyd Kaufman is this outsized personality and I love that he shows up to cons mm-hmm. with people dressed up as his characters and I love, <laughs> you know, it's that same kind of showmanship that Hitchcock had just skewed a little bit mm-hmm. differently. It's that William Castle thing. It's, it's William Castle and Hitchcock had a baby and it looks as ugly as Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> but has the comic timing of Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I you know, I kinda wanna see how his conception occurred. I really do. There's gotta be a documentary <laughs> made on that. <laughs> well, and I you know, I, I came to I came to Edwood because of the Tim Burton film. And it's like I I I didn't really I hadn't seen Plan Nine from Outer Space. It wasn't until I got the box set that I had really I think I rented Plan 9 from Outer Space after, in Glen or Glenda, after uh, the Tim Burton film. I don't think I, but I don't think I'd seen any of the other ones, even on MST3K. I think I'd missed those episodes um, until the box set. So um, one, one of the things that I, and it's, 
you know, I made Ed Wood one of the one of the columns I do on Sonic Cinema is a movie a week where I try to watch a movie a week, whether it's something new to me or whether it's something that I've seen before, and I review it fresh based off of a fresh viewing. And uh, a few years ago, about six years ago, I think uh, I made Ed Wood my bookend um, filmmaker. Basically, every year. For these, I would bookend the year with one particular thing, filmmaker that I was interested in or I just really admire, whether somebody like Andre Tarkovsky, Kurosawa, and Bergman were the first ones, and then Ed Wood was next. You're and so classy, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would he think to know that he's in that same collection? <laughs> well, and the thing is, it's like, I, I think because by that point... Ed Wood, it, you know, it's like one of the things, if if you're new to watching films, it's like one of the first things I think you're going to find out is, you know, his, his he has a reputation for being the worst filmmaker of all time. I think anybody who sees a certain amount of films, however, can plainly see that he's not the worst filmmaker of all time. They he have not seen Dumpster that. Baby. They, they have not seen Dumpster <laughs> They, they, haven't Manos. Seen, they haven't seen Manos, they haven't seen Monster to Go-Go, they haven't seen half the crap that Mystery Science Theater's done over the years. Um, oh, Street Trash. They've, they've clearly never seen Street Trash. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, Ed Wood, it's, his movies are not good. That is, that is very clear. If you watch his movies, they're low budget, they're not particularly well acted, they're they're not good movies, but he does have a tenure for dialogue. Don't forget they that. Are, hey, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> I I can't forget that. And uh, you know, cops making in natural use of uh, guns to prop up their uh, the bills of their hats. Um, and just scratching the side <laughs> of your head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that I will say about Ed Wood, and this is where I would. This is where I would take him out of the realm of worst filmmakers of all, worst filmmaker of all time is the fact that he's always you can always tell that there's an enthusiasm for filmmaking and there's a very clear voice for filmmaking and that's one of the reasons that I made him a bookend filmmaker is because I do think there's even if his films are not great and they're not there's a voice be in there that's wanting to come out, and that's one of the things that interests me so much about him. I feel like Ed Wood is, is a representation of every wannabe filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I feel like he is a bit of our voice. He, oh, yeah. He, he, speaks, he speaks out and says, you know what? I got somebody to fund a little bit of this. You can probably get your much better film made. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's something, uh, again, about that passion that I really related to. And I yeah. love how, in almost in the same way that Hitchcock's films are very personal to him or John Waters, like he just takes things, they take things that interest them and that obsess them and somehow find a way to work a narrative around it. Yeah. And I love that <clears throat> it's not just like a cynical thing. It's a way of mm -hmm. uh, bringing your passions to life and sharing them with people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you especially something like Glenn or Glenda, which if you know anything about Ed Wood's history, I mean, you know, it doesn't even 
you know, I mean, you get glimpses of it in the uh, Tim Burton film, but I mean, just in general, it's like Glenn or Glenda is obviously a very personal project for him. It's a tonal mess. It's a disaster of narrative, <laughs> but it's it's a personal project to him. And uh, that's that's one of the things that is it. You can't help but watch it. You can't help but be intrigued by it. It, it's his uh, My Best Fiend by Herzog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, I don't remember the exact wording, but Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller summed up very nicely. And he was talking about how pure Ed Wood's writing is. There's something mm. about that that feels unfiltered, like it just poured right out of his skull. Yeah. And uh, there's a certain, um, I hate to reuse it, but purity to it where there isn't... Uh, it feels almost like... Glenn is a great example because... Here's the cross-dressing, which I'm very passionate about. Here's the look of norms and sexuality. Oh, and I love Bela Lugosi. Let's put him in, too. <laughs> yeah. And there's a sense that I don't care if it goes together or not. I just love these things, mm-hmm. and I want them in my movie. I believe the style you're referring to is, we don't need no stinking editors. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, always, and always shoot the first draft, because the first draft is perfect when it comes to the screenplay. Well, it reminds me of um, an episode of Futurama where um, Harold Zoid, uncle, uh, Zoidberg's uncle, mm-hmm. um, they, they say, well, we've just finished this print. Editing is a costly and time, t- time uh, expansive process, so the mo- premiere will be ready next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's like, if you look at the early John Waters films, like, they are probably about equally crude in terms of production they're just like a master shot with a little zooming Mm -hmm. and there's no cutaways there's no other angles there's no coverage and so there's a certain sense that like when the uh film gets out of the can done (laughs) you don't make a cut off a master (laughs) (laughs) and i I love that he was able to make fun of himself too and Mm. i feel that same edward spirit in cecil be demented and i love the sort of self-reflection and the willingness to make fun of yourself that that shows. I'm pretty sure Cecil B. Demented is John Waters' biopic. That's hmm. <laughs> uh, he chose to make himself much cuter and strangely heterosexual, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wore a straight jacket. It works. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to say, in the research for coming onto the show, we, um, we watched... We watched the, the biopic, Night of the Ghouls. Night of the Ghouls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Night of the Ghouls. And I was impressed with Night of the Ghouls. Like, yeah. It has got a clear narrative. Mm-hmm. It has got a great, like the the A plot of Night of the Ghouls. I loved. Mm-hmm. I, I Like if he had kept it without the supernatural aspect, I would have like A++ will do business with, again, best movie of 2018. <laughs> I mean, it was remarkably well paced, mm-hmm. well, um, well plotted. The, di- the, the dialogue was not as bad. And then Matt informed me that he didn't do most of the work on it. So I see yeah. why it's so good. Yeah. So for yeah, those who don't know, for those who don't mm-hmm. know, uh, basically what had happened was they, you know, what, what had, had happened, happened was, was uh, <laughs> they, they filmed the movie and they put together a work print, which Paul Marco says they screened at one point. And Ed had some extra footage of Lugosi he wanted to add. Mm-hmm. And um, but unfortunately, <coughs> he couldn't afford the lab fees, so the lab held the uh, positives hostage. And it wasn't until 1982. I've got this here. A uh, 
man named... Uh, These are meticulously written out note cards for the audience <laughs> at home. Wade Williams uh, wanted to buy the rights to Plan 9 from his widow, and she said, oh, there's another film you've not seen. And he was able to pay the positive cost and get the film edited and put together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of, and it's one of those things where I think part of that conciseness and clarity is the fact that he didn't do the editing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and when when I learned that after uh, after watching Night of the Ghouls for the first time, it's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I wasn't him finishing it, but the fact of better is, I mean, I do think, I do think that's one of his better films, especially mm -hmm. of the ones that are not even be even with even taking that out of the equation that somebody else edited it. I think it's certainly it certainly feels more. Like his his storytelling is not as choppy and as it silly. Feel, it feels like he finally got to tell a story the way he really wanted to. Yeah. Instead of it just being a mishmash of ideas, it it's a like um it I makes me wonder what would have happened if he had let someone else help a little bit. Mm -hmm. Would he be the worst filmmaker ever made or, or you know ever or would he be the seminal sci-fi creator of you know the 50s <laughs> i i don't know that i would necessarily <laughs> go that far i mean there there are some good competition there i i do think he would he i do think he probably would have had better reputation i've seen the creeping but... terror brian i don't know how much competition there really is yeah do you really want to put that up against the crawling eye and see what oh. happens uh, Okay. Um, that's one of the things that really, when I, I, you know, had this reputation, the worst filmmaker ever, and I really dove in and started watching these movies again in earnest, I realized that, oh yeah, like these are goofy, dialogue's not good, stuff falls over, but they're um, <laughs> eminently more watchable than basically uh, so many of these other films. And I oh, think yeah. that when you, if you encounter Plan 9 for the first time, not understanding that it does seem awful but when you look at some of these other films and think about how cheaply they were thrown together you look at the screaming skull and how like nothing happens and it's just dull and mm -hmm. it's easier to go oh yeah so there's something special here there's and something kind of unique about it and yeah it feels like the people that made the decision that ed wood was the worst filmmaker were not you know teenagers in the 90s which had to deal with vhs or straight to video horror movies um, I have picked up some films that make Ed Wood look or make Ed Wood's films look like Citizen Kane. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually one thing I wanted to kind of uh, get at real quick is I feel like there's classes of bad films. I feel like uh, like Manos is kind Elitist. of the bottom floor. Yeah. So what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like Manos is the bottom floor because it was just made on a dare. Like I bet I can make a movie. Right. Doesn't matter if it's good. I made it. You know. Right. And then, you know, and then there's some, but there's also another class where you have something like, the easy reference would be Twilight, like what, mm -hmm. where you have great <laughs> cinematography, marvelous score, wonderful actors, it's just that the story is not there. And <laughs> the movie's dull, but it's not poorly made. Well, and the part of, and I will say this about Twilight, wonderful actors acting poorly. Because like, they're given in, nothing to work with. Yeah, yeah. They're so. given a Mormon dating manual to to turn into a narrative film with with, with vampires, sparkly vampires. Well, and there's also you know the fact that the first three movies have enough narrative to really make 
one movie. Yeah. And they just kind of keep stretching it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, that's not the actor's fault. They're just not given anything worthwhile to work with. Mm -hmm. Well, and and no, I mean, there's there's definitely, I mean, there are definitely so many different um, styles of bad filmmaking. I mean, I would, you know, it's like you you look at... uh, you know, you you mentioned Twilight. I mean, that's that's. It's an easy one. target, but oh, it's 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 definitely an easy one. Then you have if if you want to go bigger movies, I mean, you've got something like uh, the last few Michael Bay Transformers movies, which are just atrociously written and paced. It's ridiculous. There's no reason it needs to be two and a half hours at all. Yeah, and. Uh, well, that's how long it takes Michael Bay to finish. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like, then you have somebody, like, you also have somebody like Uwe Boll, who's sort of, I, I would put him below Ed Wood, as far as filmmaking. Because, yeah, he's got money to make these movies, but... They're all tax shelters. Yeah, and, and they're atrociously written, performed. Yeah, we need to find out how to get some of that tax shelter money. We really do. (laughs) With our luck, it would be like the Money Python of the Holy Grail thing. It would be that producer's thing where they, you know, uh, they give us a bunch of money um, thinking it's just going to be a tax write-off and then it becomes successful, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I've seen more, and I refuse to pronounce his name correctly, he does not, has not earned it, you bowl yeah. movies than I care to admit to. Um, because only people who make good movies get their names pronounced right, okay? That's why Michael Bay. <laughs> Anyone else thinking about the uh, the substitute teacher from Key and Peele here? Yes. <laughs> I mean, Jake Quellen would totally agree, so would Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> um. Our references are just bouncing everywhere. I think we're making your podcast more, um, uh, what's the word, relatable to other fans. Well, and the thing is, it's like this, this, is, this is inevitably how movie discussions go, I think. It's like you have this one base topic and then you can branch out. And especially with something like Ed Wood, you're talking about bad films. I mean, I'm putting that in air quotes, but I mean, you know. They're they're bad films, but like Matthew said, they're, they're like you guys said, they're different degrees of bad films. They're different oh, yes. types of well, bad films. And I often sort of wonder. I guess this is slightly philosophical, but is it um, is it fair to judge something that was shot in four days with ten thousand dollars on the same scale that you judge a multi million dollar production? Like I feel like in a way something in the Twilight ilk is actually worse because they've mm-hmm. had much more to work with. Oh, yeah. that's And that's why, that's why honestly, I mean, admittedly, that's part of the reason why I have no problem giving Ed Wood a pass to a large degree because, yeah, he, he didn't have... Not saying his films would have necessarily been better with <laughs> more of a budget, but... I, I think he did better with what he had than most people do well, and with hundreds hundred times you know, there's growth. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, um, being someone who's dated a lot of directors, um, I've seen what you can do with 
$2,000 in an afternoon. I've seen what you can do with $5,000 in three days. And I've seen what you can do with $10,000 in a week. And Ed Wood did remarkably well, considering I was part of a film called Night of the Dark Evil Magic. <laughs> I am sorry. Every time you bring that up, I am sorry. I know. I mean, we really need to get that. That needs to be the closure I have is me getting apologized to you for being a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, um, in, in a way, the fact that some of these movies came together at all is a miracle. Yeah. Like, you look at Plan 9 especially, you've got a star who's dead, a star who won't talk. You've got, you know, a lot of stuff you've got to work around. It's amazing he came out with any film at all. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out that she totally contradicted herself in that interview, uh, speaking specifically of Vampyra, yeah. the star that wouldn't talk. She said that she thought her character would be better not speaking. Whereas other things we've heard in the past would mm. imply that she refused to speak. So I, I really want to know the actual story, and we never will. Well, that's yeah. actually one of the things that I find most fascinating about the biopic and about the book that it's based on. Uh, Nightmare, uh, Nightmare of Ecstasy by Rudolph Gray was uh, an oral history. It was in that no, please don't kill me style. <laughs> and it, you know, it was fascinating because there's this Rashomon thing going through the whole thing where one person says something very definitively and then the next person contradicts it very mm -hmm. directly. And even though it is, as Chris Will said, based on the sworn testimony yeah. of those who survived <laughs> this horrific ordeal, there's still a lot of points where you have to kind of go, you kind of, <laughs> and when you're crafting a slightly fictionalized narrative, you've got to kind of give a little bit and say, well, maybe it happened this way. I don't know. Yeah. And um, I'm kind of fascinated with how they were able to shape a coherent film out of all these contradictions. And it also kind of fascinates me that because this is stuff that until fairly recently was forgotten we're never going to know the real truth about most of this. Mm -hmm. There is going to be so it's going to be layers of rumor and innuendo and I kind of am fascinated by the fact that uh, like the Joker said the uh, history is p multiple choice. Yeah. Like we're never going to get a clear definition of this is exactly how this happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be a good transition to get into the Tim Burton film a little bit if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, we can definitely do that. And um I I will say I I still I I, I have a soft spot for movies about movies, about filmmaking and oh, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it, a big part of it starts with Ed Wood. I mean, there are other fantastic ones, but I mean, Ed Wood's a big part of it, the Tim Burton film. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it, you, you start off with uh, Ed Wood, played by Giant Depp, uh, one of his best performances still. Sweet. And, and for um, any younger folks that might be listening, there was a time when you wanted Johnny Depp in your movie. Yeah. There was a time where he was an indie darling. And yeah. There was a, a time where women flocked to theaters at the idea of Johnny Depp showing up. Especially in a dress. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, I think that's just me that's like, oh, Johnny Depp in a dress. Oh, my <laughs> God. I'm pretty sure there's a, 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 a certain underground following in that degree. And this was also a time when Tim Burton was at the height of his powers. And oh, yeah, because he was coming off of Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, uh, the bat well, the first two Batman movies, and then he had just uh, 
they had just done uh, Nightmare Before Christmas with Henry Selig. And, uh, yeah, so it's, I, I love Ed Wood. I, in the, oh, what are the names of the writers? Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say him because I can't pronounce him to say the Karaszewski's. Yeah, it to took save my it life. took some time to find um, that one. I had to research the pronunciation, but I I definitely had to mention those writers because they went on to do fantastic other biopics, uh, The People versus Larry Flynn and Man on the Moon for Milos Foreman, and uh, it's it's another. And all three of those are basically about oddball characters um, following their passions in one way or the other and uh, changing how we view what they do. Interesting sidebar. In Lawrenceville, Georgia, you can see the bullet hole from where Larry Flint was shot at. Hmm. Yeah, we went on a um, a walking tour, the ghost tour, and they pointed that out. It was kind of fascinating. I just thought that would be a good sidebar to include. You know, we're, we're here to help tourism to Georgia, right? Yeah, of course. Well, especially if you're going to be here because you're making movies, you might as well stop yeah. by. And yeah. that, that is definitely one of the big things in Georgia is to make movies. Yeah. Um, I, I really... Please hire us. Uh, all I, of us. I, I love Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. They're brilliant writers. Yeah. And... I love, like, biopics are a really hard genre because either they're, like, cradle to the grave movies where it's just, like, two minutes of each year and it's kind of, you don't have context for anything and it's kind of dull. Yeah. Or they, one thing that bothers me a lot is a lot of biopics tend to shape the narrative in a way that just makes it look like other movies. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so let's say you're an alien and you're seeing Earth culture for the first time. Let's say you see Ray and walk the line relatively close to each other. Right. If you didn't know these were based on real people, wouldn't you just assume that one was a remake of the other? Like, oh, so we took the same story and we just made it a country singer. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that no, you're, yeah, even even in the 90s, I mean, you had that um, very standard biopic uh, historical drama type thing. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes Ed, Tim Burton, I mean, other than the fact that he, it's very obvious that he had a personal connection oh, yeah. to the films of Ed Wood. I mean, if you've watched any of Tim Burton's work at all, I mean, that would come through. That it's like spirit, he, yeah. He's the, you know, he, he's that type of, he's the type of filmmaker that, you know, would, would see the appreciation that we've talked about as far as Ed Wood. You know, obviously there's a passion for Ed would have passion for filmmaking, even if he didn't necessarily have the talent or the finances to necessarily put it together in a great art. Well, Ed Wood is my favorite. It's my favorite biopic, and it's also my favorite Tim Burton film. There's something it, about it that just speaks to yeah, me. Yeah, same, same with me on both. Yeah. And a lot of the things are uh, Alexander and Karaszewski's uh, influence. Like, I love the way they're able to take these disparate contradicting stories and work them in together and say, mm-hmm. well, maybe. And if you read Nightmare of Ecstasy, it's amazing how many different points are covered in the movie somewhere or other. Like an average, the average person making a biopic would actually show him in the war and would show him, you know, getting knocked in the teeth by a Japanese soldier 
But in this one, they just play with the dentures and talk yeah. about it. <laughs> I love how they did something that's essentially uncinematic, but made it work. Mm-hmm. Like the whole idea that you're supposed to show rather than tell actually doesn't work here. A lot of times you're just hanging out with the characters and getting bits here and there. You're getting a little bit about the fact that he was from Poughkeepsie. You're getting the fact that... Um, you get to say Poughkeepsie. Yeah, that's always <laughs> great. You're getting the fact that Loretta King was supposedly allergic to liquids. Like mm. all these little weird things that normally wouldn't make it into another movie yeah. are there. And and I believe the influence for your next podcast here is how is one allergic to liquids? That, that should be the basis. <laughs> An of investigative. Yeah, th- yeah, that could be the investigative journalism branch. Yeah. <laughs> Sonic Cinema now presenting. Allergic to liquids, the Loretta King story. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love how everything that's you're not supposed to do, they kind of did in this movie, and yeah. it all works. No, 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 mm. it's Nightmare in Silica. Okay. Oh, actually, not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, and there's so many things about it. Like biopics are finally starting to wise up. Like if you mm-hmm. see uh, the National Lampoon one, um, a uh, what was it? A, a feudal, a feudal and stupid gesture, gesture and uh, Tanya. Those films both uh, address the camera and talk about contradictions, and they talk about things that are fake and wrong. And Mm -hmm. they're finally starting to get to the point where they allow the audience to be hip enough to understand that this isn't perfect. I feel like the addressing of the breaking the fourth wall in a biopic is absolutely acceptable, and I I love a nuanced portrayal of anyone. I want I don't want to see something that makes them golden. I don't want to see something that makes them terrible. I want to see who this person actually is. And at the time of this recording, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody hasn't come out mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. But I'm so sad that they didn't go for that like warts and all interpretation that mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen wanted. Yeah. You because can't see me rolling my eyes. Could have very made, that could have made such an amazing movie. And instead, I'm sure the one that's going to come out, I'm sure it's going to be colorful and fun and it's going to yeah. have all our favorite songs, but... It just, I, I don't really care to see it because it doesn't have that same kind of life to it. Yeah. I feel like you'd get the same joy listening to a Queen album. Probably, mm-hmm. yeah. I need probably more joy listening and, to and Queen. And you'll probably feel like you understand Freddie Mercury just a bit more doing so than just watching a two-hour, 15-minute movie that's watered down. Yeah. Listen to <laughs> Fat Bottom Girls six times in a row, and you will understand everything you needed to know about Freddie Mercury right there. Maybe don't stop me now and bicycle race. Uh, mm. Then then you're done. Well, and another thing about biopics that makes this one really unique that I love is that um, they cut out weird stuff. Normally, like in in films, they kind of they bend the truth to make it a little more interesting, or they bend it to act like other movies. But there's so many fascinating things that they just didn't have time to include. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, one thing that really interests me is that Ed got his first film camera uh, at the age of 12, and he actually got footage of the Hindenburg before it crashed. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's amazing. And I yeah. don't, you know, in uh, that's a detail where it's not important to the story, but it's just kind of fascinating to know. Mm-hmm. And there's the fact that uh, Criswell was uh, raised in a funeral home and he owned the coffin that they brought to Night of the Ghouls. And mm. he's rumored to have slept in it, too. 
And like, there's all these things that didn't entirely make the movie, but are kind of hinted at. Yeah. And I love the fact they were able to pull in references to things they didn't include. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at the backgrounds of some of the scenes where they're shooting the movie, there's a set for a scene that we're not going to get to see filmed. <laughs> I really love the fact that they put that much dedication into recreating these things. Yeah. That we're not even going to get to see used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's uh, it's. It's really one of the one of the things that is fascinating, and I mean, I I think when you have biopics, it's like ultimately you have to you you have to be judicious as far as like what story are you telling, and so I oh, yeah. I mean I think it it made sense for them to go with okay the story we're gonna tell is we're gonna tell the the one that I think emotionally is gonna be the most entertaining for people is the story of Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi and their friendship. And I mean, and the, and you can encapsulate a lot of stuff in that. And like you're talking about just these quick, you know, these quick little references to just different things in his life. That really frame him as a person too. Like I honestly feel like because of that biopic that I could, make a friendship with Ed Wood because I understand so much of who he is, um, even without the additional biographical details that I know just, well, from being around Matt at all, (laughs) ever. Um, You know how there's that one person that's obsessed with serial killers? This is Matt with Ed Wood. Occasionally things will just pop out into the conversation you weren't expecting. Yeah. Did you know Ed Wood had a terrier? You know, it's just randomly (laughs) popped in. I forgot what kind of dogs they had, but there was, yeah, there's this delightful picture in Nightmare of Ecstasy that Mm -hmm. uh, has this tiny little dog called Monster. He's a Dutchtown size, but I don't think that's the actual breed. It's been so long since I've seen it. But it's got, you know, Ed wearing slacks and a shirt and a tie with the Angora sweater over it, kneeling down to play with the dog. (laughs) <laughs> and it was named by Bella. They called him, I uh, said it was a cute little monster, and so that's where the name came from. That's actually also how I was named. I changed it in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and there's something, uh, I love the subtlety of the way the film is presented. I think that it's the best cinematography and lighting of any Tim Burton film. Yeah. It's the most visually striking in a, in a way that's, Interesting because it's not as fantastical as his other films. And it's not mm-hmm. his house style at all. Yeah. And yet it's definitively Tim Burton. It's oh, yeah. A, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautifully made film. Um, I would say if I didn't know, though, that it was Tim Burton, I might not guess because, A, there's no stripes anywhere to, mm-hmm. to be spotted whatsoever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing pops out of anywhere. It's, it's you know, fairly... Well, yeah. and uh, like I love some some of the subtle little touches. Like I love that there's that giant painting of Dracula that they sit underneath, and so the shadow of Dracula mm-hmm. is hanging over Bella at all times. Yeah, and I love the way they handle the drugs, kind of off camera, off to the side. Yeah, I love that even though you never see footage of Ed getting sloppy drunk. Every, if you look at the frame, there's always a bottle of whiskey next to the typewriter. Mm-hmm. There's always, uh, he's taking uh, one drink here and there. I love the idea that these things that are not outright explored are still present in the story. Well, and things.
themes that would come up in a different director's story much more obviously. Yeah. We love as a culture to highlight the absolute worst that we can see in someone that's that's elevated. Mm-hmm. We love to say, oh, well, Edward drank a lot or Bela Lugosi was addicted to morphine. And while these were a part of the story, it was that su- it was again that subtle nuance of humanity that even someone who's brilliant is well more often than not someone who's brilliant has a dependency has something to quiet all the mm-hmm. noise in their head well and also there's just something about it for you know it, everyone in this room has been involved with filmmaking to some degree or other and i think we've all experienced that kind of person that's like is there a script fuck no but there's a poster <laughs> like I, lo- I love that line so much and i love that <laughs> moment of okay shoot it in four days whatever baloney you want just go you know and i love um like you know uh, i think everyone in this room has shot somewhere where they have a permit at least once yeah. no i am always legit and legal every time i've filmed you can't see her crossing I, your fingers. I, I, but I, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. I, like, I, so it's, I'm, it's I'm, always, very I'm always on the up and up when it comes always, to that stuff. Always, yeah. Um, and, and don't look at YouTube and you know find contradictory evidence to the, no, no, to no, the no, contrary. No, no, no. Please leave those in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure they've got plenty to say when we put this on Twitter. Anyone who can find my very early films... Um, Thank you. I think they've been taken off Mr. Skin by now. <laughs> okay, they were never on Mr. Skin. No. Well, yeah, well and there goes your political career. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and the thing is, it's like you're, I I, what you're saying as far as uh, as far as the subtle hints, as far as Edward's alcoholism and the drug drug addiction, it's like that's one of the things that I. It doesn't sensationalize that, yeah. and that is one of the great things about what uh, Karaszewski and Alexander and Burton do is that it it would have been very easy to sensationalize, uh, especially Bela Lugosi's uh, drug addiction, and it it really it really makes him sympathetic because of the fact, that, and then even on. A different level, you can you can feel like you're talking about with the uh, the uh, frame picture of Dracula overhead. You know that that's just another thing. It's just sort of another step on him, sort of not being able to get out from the uh, shadow of his past, and sort of that's his. That's another way of his coping coping mechanism. And unhealthy coping oh with yeah. that. And I think, you know, uh, for all creative people, this movie shows your two worst fears, either being a has-been or being a never-was. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain way that we relate to and root for these guys because we see our fears yeah. laid bare right in front of us. Yeah, and I, I have to imagine this is probably one of a lot of filmmakers' favorite films. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. When it comes to... Uh, making movies, especially if you've started with that scrounging for finances and, you know, just making something for the sake of making something. Well, I know from, like, podcasts and interviews I've heard, I know Jonah Ray, who's on MS2PK now. Yeah. He's a huge fan. Bobcat Goldthwait is a huge fan, even has a tattoo. Like, 
there's a certain sense of not n and not just fans of the Tim Burton film, but fans of Ed Wood in general. And there, and if you look especially at Bobcat's films, the, uh, that yeah. spirit definitely comes through. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, I, it, to to relate it to you know memes for everyone that's under the age of thirty. Um, Ed Wood, the biopic, is almost like the definitive expectation versus reality. Yeah, um, yeah. You, oh, see, yeah. Bo you see both his expectation idea that this is going to be the greatest film ever made, the reality that it's not that bad, but it's not as pretty as you want it to be, sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I love that you know we're still talking about these films today, and we still know his name. Mm -hmm. And that actually counts for a lot. Because, oh, yeah. Um, how many people, uh, aside from like real hardcore film snobs, know the name Merchant Ivory today? Yeah, like, uh, but you only know that because we heard it last night. I've seen one or two <laughs> of his films, but yeah, uh, like uh, that's why well, I thought there were films. Course, there were there were a pair or a couple. Yeah, or... I think I've seen. Yeah, I think I may have seen all of them. <laughs> I think I've seen the two, but yeah, like um, you know, and I don't really remember them. Yeah. Like Roger good, Corman but... isn't an everyday name, but I can guarantee you that if you say Ed, Ed Wood at most people, even those people that don't obsessively watch movies, that they're going to go, well, I've heard that name before. But if I say Roger Corman, they're going to look at me and go, but at the same time, if you mention Little Shop of Horrors, then they'll know. But yeah. you know who that is, and you know, like, but they're not going to know the original original uh, Little Shop of Horrors. No, they're, they're going to know the Frank Oz musical. Yeah. So. Which is delightful. Yeah, and not not taking anything away from that, and mm -hmm. I I feel like in a way, uh, Jim Henson and Frank Oz had that same kind of spirit, although mm -hmm. they had more to work with. Yeah. Um, there's what? a certain anarchy to the Muppets that I love. Mm -hmm. We saw that animation the other day that was clearly for an adult audience. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was out of um, that was out of Henson Studios. We found it on um, was it Fanbear? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Also, Fandor, if you ever hear this cast, we would take a free subscription, absolutely, um, for, for advertising. <laughs> but um, that that entrepreneurial spirit is definitely visible in anything Henson, and it makes me feel almost a little Ed Wood-like there. Like, they, you know, kind of just said, we're going to throw these ideas together and make something beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and actually, even the first Muppet movie has a certain sense of that where... I love uh, when Kermit's talking to his nephew and is like, is this really the real story? Well, not exactly. <laughs> you know, I love that they're, yeah. they're presenting this as a film within a film, and I love that there's a certain, mm -hmm. like, okay, this is close, but it's a fiction still. Yeah. Well, I've always decided that my biography, when I, when I die, which may be never, um, that I want my story to be told as fictitiously exaggerated as possible. <laughs> I was 16 feet tall and I earned or earned a herd of oxen. Like I want my story to be told with the barest of actual truth. I want to be a legend. And I feel like with the speaking of Edward specifically, that there is a little bit of that beautiful fantasy weaved in mm -hmm. that, that, while we we looked at his warts and all, we kind of glossed over him with a, putting a little tiny bit of uh, petroleum jelly on the lens. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's um, the the inspirational music helps. Like I mm -hmm. love uh, Howard Shore's score is fantastic. Oh, it's, and it's 
My favorite score he's done too. And yeah. The I love the theremin mm-hmm. and I love the the sort of the the marching music while they're shooting Plan Nine. Yeah. Um, but there's um, there is a certainly a sense of fantasy to it, mm-hmm. and uh, like we know, Plan Nine never played at Pantages, <laughs> but who cares? It's a beautiful scene. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Well, I mean, and that's that's one of those things where it's like you you under even even though it's like in in your mind you know that obviously that would not have happened, but you you go with it because emotionally speaking, it's like you want that to be the case. It's yeah. it's wish fulfillment for you know these these filmmakers who never really will have gotten there. It's more honest than saying based on a true story. Yeah, oh, it's that, far more honest. And that, that's another thing. Like so many movies oh. now are based on a true story, but they've got like two or three things that actually happened, and the rest is completely made okay, up. Okay, let, let yeah. me get on my soapbox real quick on a movie that's totally unrelated. Um, I love horror. Horror is my jam. I am obsessed. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite films is The Strangers. I love The Strangers. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, right off a highway, where terrible things could happen. Right. (laughs) Because, I mean, it was pitch black. Um, Even 911 had to get directions to our house. That's how bad we were at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But the action, it says based on a true story. Yeah. The actual story is, ready guys? I'm about to load some truth on you. The actual story is, in the middle of the night, someone came to the director's door as he was a child and asked if someone who didn't live there was home. So by that's that, it. By that logic, <laughs> you could claim that in or excuse me, that uh, Lost Highway is based on a true story because <laughs> somebody uh, rang David Lynch's door and said Dick Laurent is dead and ran away. So you know, by that same logic, you could claim that anything is true. Yeah. Whereas with Ed Wood, yes, there is a gloss of fantasy. It is there are some things that are definitely not true of uh, made for more interesting story, but there's so much that actually was true that mm. is is somewhat legendary. Like, you know, making a film with one of your favorite actors, yeah, is, is true. <laughs> you know, getting that opportunity. Well, and most of the stuff that's not. 100% true in that film is just kind of window dressing. A lot mm-hmm. of it is we didn't know how these two people really met. So here's an introduction. Yeah. And, you know, it does kind of gloss over things. I'm going to hold that to canon. I'm going to just say well, that. Yeah. So <laughs> that um, story's canon. They totally met at the Brown Derby. Sure. Yes, yeah. They, why not? Yes. That yeah, happened. Um, <laughs> you know, and so there's a lot of little things around. Uh, oh, Sort of they color in the lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. What's that line about? I choose to ignore your reality and create my own. Yeah, that's how <laughs> I live my life. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, so there's uh, definitely you know a sense that there's a if you really wanted to go line by line, there's you know dozens of things oh, right. that are not true, but the amount of things that are perfect, yeah, is astounding. So I think this is a good segue to kind of dip into Glenn or Glenda again. Mm-hmm. It's definitely true and not true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, uh, by the way, I found it funny. We were when we were doing research. We found out that the Roku still listed as "I changed my sex," and huh. we just thought it was amusing. So I wanted <laughs> to throw it out there for anyone. That's why things were said in tandem. It makes it more interesting if you say it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of rappers have noticed that too. Like, okay, let's let Brian talk about Shane. Yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and we. 
and one of the things that uh, when we were talking about when we first started talking about Ed Wood and we were talking about um, things like Bela Lugosi's drug addiction and stuff like that, I think, you know, and going to, segueing into Glenn or Glenda by, by way of Tim Burton's film, I, I think the thing that, I think one of the things that's most impactful to me is, you know, especially since I was like 17, 18 when I first saw it, was the idea that Ed Wood is, is a transvestite. And, you know, that's everybody complete, well, most everybody in the film is completely accepting of that and completely understanding of that. Except and for Horseface. <laughs> Horseface that, that, can't take that, that she's pre- that, he's prettier as a girl. <laughs> except now when I think of Horseface, unfortunately, I have a different uh, image in my head. Um, oh, so you've seen because two. Of, Never mind. It's a yeah, recent. Let's, let's not talk uh, about Mr. Hands. No, let's not. Yeah, we're not getting invited back, folks. <laughs> uh, anyway, but and and I think that was something that really I I think in the that really um, had an effect on me, and not in not in the sense of anything, just being so accepting of that is just a completely normal thing that could be. You know that somebody would do. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, we grew up in the South, so you know we don't we don't necessarily hide our crazy in the attic. We put it out on the front porch for everybody to see it. But being accepting of anything to do with gender identity, especially yeah. when we're in our teens, it wasn't nearly what it's like now. So yeah. um, it was like Matt had with Rocky Horror Picture Show being exposed to. There's more than one type of sexuality? What? Well, I mean, like, at that, when I saw Rocky Horror, at first I was 11, and I knew that there were people who were attracted to the same sex. I knew there were people attracted to the opposite sex. But it didn't occur to me that there's somebody that might be attracted to both. And so that blew my mind when I was 11. (laughs) And, you know, it's weird how a lot of, you know, we tend to give pop culture a bad rap and say you can't really, these movies don't really mean anything and blah, blah, blah. But actually... There are so many times where you can get a message or a lesson or an idea from something that pays off in your real life, even mm-hmm. if it's just, hey, be nicer to this person because they've been through a lot that you don't know about. And at the time, transvestism was still considered in the DSM. It mm-hmm. was a mental defect that you could oh, yeah. actually go yeah. be, be um, what's the word I'm looking for, committed for. Yeah. So to see in this film, even though, to be fair, it's, you know, a fictionalized depiction, we don't know what it was really like, but yeah. to see it be so accepted <laughs> is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if the reality was more, not necessarily acceptance, but more, that's just Ed, guys. That's, that's how he rolls. Can yeah. you imagine there's like three grips going, oh, do you want to say anything? <laughs> no. Have you tried to touch the sweater before, guy? Don't do it. Oh, and that's one thing I love about Johnny Depp's performance. Thank you for reminding me. I love how there's all sorts of points where he's putting his hand on a woman's shoulder and, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that's meant to look like he's comforting, but he's just really feeling the fabric. Yeah. Like, there's so many little nuances in that performance that astound me. Mm-hmm. But I I, um, I didn't see Glenn or Glenda until I was much older. I'd seen Plan 9 much earlier, but 
being a uh, somewhat gay teenager and seeing a representation of something like this was, mm-hmm. um, it was like like knowing about David Bowie to me. It was that there are people like me in the world. Right. And they can be famous and they can do things. They can be beloved for They're, being different. Yes. And that was like when Bowie died, it was like losing a parent. It, it, yeah. it, it ruined me for a few days. And, um, cause that's how much my parents are valuable. Um, <laughs> it's a few day upset for me, but seeing any kind of gender dysphoria any representation of anything that's even outside of the norm was impressive to me. And mm-hmm. as you're, as you're saying, Brian, and, and I know you grew up in a bit more conservative household yeah. too. So, well, I mean, or at least I wasn't necessarily as, I wasn't necessarily as exposed to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily more conservative, but I mean, I was certainly not as, you know, that that type of thing wasn't discussed. I went to naked witch gatherings on the weekend. <laughs> I think your household is probably more conservative. Well, yeah. yeah. I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> did they know you were going to that though? Did they know? Um, my dad didn't, but my mom did. Okay, so <laughs> ha- you get me. you get half credit for that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, there's something about that that's so ahead of the curve, and and I think it's so interesting that Ed was willing to put something that private out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's fascinating that he was that open, like, okay, I'm going to tell everybody. Yeah. And because of him not being fantastic with dialogue, it was very obvious how personal this story was. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's, it highlights that he is a good filmmaker in the sense that he put his personal narrative out there, warts and all, yet again, to use the phrase, um, for everyone to see. And it was clear it was personal. And while the film was not necessarily loved, mm-hmm. it was definitely a passion project. Oh yeah, yeah, and that and that's one of the things that I that's one of the things I love about um, him as a his, him as a filmmaker, especially that film. I mean, I as, as filmmaking, it's kind of a train wreck oh, in yeah. in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's it's something that you you can't help but watch it and admire it to a certain degree. A little love, yeah. Like, you 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 start to love Mr. Wood just a little bit. Yeah. Well, and according to what I read, uh, fourteen minutes of that are stock footage. Like, mm-hmm. there's a huge amount of that that he didn't make himself. Yeah. And it's <laughs> uh, um, but. Like so, but it's also kind of fitting because it is this mishmash of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is that Polnick line again? The... <clears throat> My favorite line from Invisible Monsters, which is "Nothing of me is original. I am the combined effort of every person I've ever known." Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true of filmmakers uh, in general. We, yeah, we all kind of have uh, mashups, and I love I love people that are willing to kind of throw things together and. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the things that one of the reasons that the Coen Brothers are so celebrated is they can't do a straight film. They're like, yeah, even uh, a neo noir film has kind of horror elements, or mm-hmm. they mix stuff around so much that Greg Araki did a straight film. He did one a straight film, <laughs> yeah. uh, but and um, the only like there's also even among <clears throat> some of our underground heroes, there's still a sense of cynicism to them. Like, I'm very fond of Herschel Gordon-Lewis, and his movies are awful, but oh, I love 
the salesmanship. Mm-hmm. Like, he was one of those guys that knew how to sell a movie, and I love the idea that he knew how to show you something that nobody else had. Right. And um, so I prefer, given the choice, I prefer something a little more personal. But I also appreciate that whole idea of, you know, here's something that nobody else is going to show you, and, you know, everybody line up because I've got it and no one else does, and you're going to love it. You know, and that kind of sensationalism that William Castle had. Like, Mm -hmm. that man knew how to advertise. Now, on, you know, the other end of the spectrum is my personal favorite director, Mr. Charles Band from Full Moon, (laughs) who's like, will this sell? Oh, it's tiny things that'll kill? That'll sell. Let's make it. (laughs) We made one of those last year. Well, it it made money, didn't it? Let's make another. (laughs) And yet, I um, I introduced Matt. I don't know if you're familiar, Brent, with Video Zone from Full Moon. No. So in the 90s, so I, I feel like I need to translate this for younger listeners. Okay. In the 90s, there were these things called videotapes. Oh, come on. They know what they are. They collect them. Oh, yeah. They're so retro. Um, <laughs> so there were these videotapes, but Full Moon would put, and since they couldn't really get trailers for any movies other than Full Moon movies, right. they put in about a half-hour segment talking about the films that they were making, including behind-the-scenes stuff, interviews with mm-hmm. the actors. Um, some and of it was the just effects stuff. Some yeah. of, and they would teach you about effects. They would talk about um, merch they were selling. It was this real... And it actually, seeing those as a kid, made me think that Mr. Band might be a little more involved because he wanted to teach us about filmmaking in mm-hmm. the process. And I think that's where my spirit to make films kind of came from is... Because these were gems. They were on bad movies. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see some of them if you, uh, on the Full Moon cha- streaming channel, mm-hmm. they have some of the videos they always pulled up, which are great because each one ends with like a phone number and an address you can call. And they've blocked them out because they're like, this is 2000. We yeah. don't have these anymore. <laughs> Use the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that was actually the exact phrase they said was they covered up the address and said, Use the internet. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's and Lloyd Kaufman has that same kind of personal thing where he's written so many books about low budget filmmaking and he's done so many late videos just on YouTube and like we can joke that they're all in it for the money but they're clearly in love with their profession right yeah yeah and and you know that that's I I think that's the case you know we we talked about Lynch last time we're talking about Edward this time it's like. That's part of why when I decided that like Edward was going to be part of this, these bookends for me as far as filmmakers, that's part of why I didn't feel like that was out of place. Yeah, the quality of his work is definitely out of step with somebody like Kurosawa Bergman, but the spirit and the auteur spirit is not. Oh, it's yeah. very much... Like you know, you're auteur. watching. You're you're you know you're watching an Ed Wood film. Yeah, you're watching his brain spilled yeah. out in front of you. I mean, I I think a lot of the great filmmakers are like that. They have certain signatures, you know. And now with Ed Wood, that's a little bit more complicated because it's like, well, you know, his signatures kind of bad, but at the same time, you. It's it's a particular type of bad too. But his his signature is. Honestly, I prefer Ed Wood's signature to say Wes Anderson's signatures. Hmm. Wes Anderson's signatures, like the syncopated talking, drive me batty. The fact that everyone speaks on the same meter drives me insane. Mm-hmm. 
Um, whereas Ed Wood's movies being a little bit bad, but everyone kind of the dialogue being kind of measured, but you can tell that people are ad-libbing a little here and there. You can tell that there's there's a lot of openness for creativity in the set. Yeah. That's a signature I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I appreciate when I know that if it were anyone but Ed Wood, there would be thousands of blooper reels of people breaking while doing mm-hmm. the show. <laughs> And instead, he just puts them in the finished movie. Yes, he does. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I do love that, and I love um, you know, and I'm from a particular period where the first horror movies that really resonated with me were the Universal monster movies. Mm-hmm. And I love the castles and the fog and the whole thing, and I uh, so and I also I love detective stories and things like that. So there's so much of the aesthetic he's drawing from are things that I love. Mm-hmm. You guys are so classy compared to me. Like my favorite horror <laughs> movie is, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, <laughs> <laughs> which is a classic too. And the scariest movie I've ever seen is Jesus Camp. Okay, I think we can we can all agree on that one. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, not just, put you on just, the spot. Just but... a little bit. No, I mean it, 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 it certainly scary in a lot of ways um <laughs> but uh yeah i mean and and that's that's one of the things i like about edward is that i mean i i do feel like i'm getting you you still feel like you're getting a complete experience with his yeah. movies and it's so entertaining and it's like yeah it's i i don't necessarily i've started to sort of repel from the idea of oh it's so bad it's good yeah it's like it's either good or it's bad. Let's be perfectly frank here. Yeah, yeah. But that just because it's bad doesn't mean there isn't anything that can be entertaining about it. We have a phrase in our household that it's not a good movie, but it's fun. Yeah. That is that is something we have is like the first question is, well, is it good? No. Is it fun? Yes, it is yeah. absolutely fun. Like um, one of my favorite movies is Night of the Demons. That is not a good movie mm-hmm. in any stretch. Though the Susie and the Banshees, uh, if you've ever seen the, the film, dance the dance no. is, oh, uh, I would it, highly that, recommend. Wasn't that Bauhaus or am I remembering uh, it wrong? It might have been Bauhaus. I don't yeah. know. It's one, uh, they didn't get the rights for the song either way, so it doesn't <laughs> really matter. But there is this fabulous scene in it with uh, a, what's the word? Strobe light yeah. and a dance. Mm-hmm. The movie is terrible, though. It is not a good film. Yeah, it, it, it spawned sequels that were actually better, um, but it's fun, and that's the way I. And the thing I feel about Ed Wood specifically, his films, is they are definitely fun, and they are personal. There's I can watch, you know, say The Witch. Let's talk mm-hmm. about a modern horror film that's absolutely stunningly beautiful, that is really well made, that's a great story. But I don't feel like that director gave me anything of themselves. There mm. is nothing personal yeah. in that film. Whereas I watch Plan Nine, and I can feel like Ed Wood is trying to tell me something oh, yeah. about him. Yeah, and that's that's the connection I have with these movies. Mm-hmm. With with any really low budget filmmaker, is that they had to work to mm-hmm. make this thing. And y- when you work, when you put your heart in it, it's obvious. Well, mm-hmm. if you use something a little more modern, if you look at something like Night of the Creeps or The Monster Squad, 
you can see Fred Decker going like, these are things that I love. Let's put them together and hope someone likes it. Yeah. You know, and throw them together and mix them around. And I highly do not recommend watching Monster Squad as an adult. Just, just It, it doesn't just hold up quite as it well. But it's still <laughs> I actually really liked it. I, I think it was the first time I had seen it last year, and I actually enjoyed it still. I think watching it as a kid and then seeing it as an adult changes it a little bit. Mm-hmm. If you see it the first time as an adult, then it's like, oh, well, this is good. But seeing it as a kid, I thought it was much more of a monster movie than it is. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more, it's got a lot more coming of age and awkwardness to it than I yeah. remember being there. And as an adult, that became cringeworthy for me. Like, oh God, <laughs> I was watching, the, oh, I didn't understand any of this. But at the same time, like to, to the, the point we were making is it's definitely a portrait of who Fred Decker was and what he right. loved growing up. Right. And, Shane Black as well, because I know they yeah. work on together. I feel the same way about John Landis and Joe Dante. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. That they oh, yeah. put their heart in their films. They just have a better budget. <laughs> <laughs> or they, or like with the Blues Brothers, they just disregard the budget and keep spending anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, like... Oh, that's yeah. how I feel on Amazon. I just disregard my budget and just keep buying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's definitely... And I think that... I think one of the reasons that Ed's movies didn't quite click at the time is because we're more open to that now. I think mm-hmm. it's a, a cultural thing. Like back then, horror movies were for the drive-in or they were Saturday matinee. And it was just... And like, you didn't pay attention to most of it. Yeah, yeah, it was just let's throw it up and hope the kids like it and whatever else, you know. And so the idea that um, that these this is a genre that could be used for serious self-expression or just here's a bunch of stuff I like, don't you enjoy it, is kind of, uh, it's still a fairly new idea. Well, and and that sort of brings me to, because the thing is, it's like, and that's that's interesting because of the fact that it makes me wonder, um, I'm curious how both of you feel about this, would, is the reason audiences weren't necessarily receptive to Plan 9 and stuff like that solely because of the fact that it's like they weren't if we basically i i guess what i'm trying to get at is if we didn't know what we know now if if like audiences then knew what they knew what we know about edward then now then i i know what i'm trying to say it's just not well let's let's paraphrase beetlejuice if I knew then what I know now, I yeah, have my, my little, little accident. accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, basically, what I'm trying to get at is, if audiences in the '50s had been as clued into who Edward was as an individual as we are watching it in retrospect with the Tim Burton film and all that stuff, do you think they will have been more receptive to that? I his films. think honestly probably no because the culture at the time just yeah. wasn't ready for it. Like there was, yeah, he would just be a queer. They're I not, mean, they're not ready for that kind of. But they're also not ready for that level of artistic honesty. Mm-hmm. That sense of this is something I really care about. And, and they probably wouldn't have been, and they probably wouldn't have necessarily thought about well, genre and the terms. Right, of and the whole idea that science fiction or fantasy or things like that are horror that they're uh the idea that we have that they're uh really honorable things yeah. is kind of new let let me parallel um edward's movies with a recent film that all three of us like which is hereditary mm-hmm. ari aster put so much of his self 
into that film. You can palpably feel yeah. that he understands the nuance <laughs> of a dysfunctional family. And it's this, and give, uh, you know, mm-hmm. ta- if you strip away the badness of Ed Wood's films, you get that same palpable sense yeah. of he understands his subject. Mm-hmm. And he. The, the thing also that makes that an interesting example is I was uh, just yesterday listening to his interview with Nick Garris, and he said that he started out making Hereditary in a very cynical way. He said, well, I know horror films sell, so let's, I'm going to write a horror movie. And then as he was making it, he started thinking, well, what can I add to it that I care about? What can I do to make myself excited right. about making a horror film? And so I like that it started off as, you know, in a cynical kind of way and then became passionate as it mm. went along. And yeah. I think that the passion he brought to it really shows. Yeah, and as somebody who, uh, and I mean, I, you know, in, I didn't even necessarily think, I just, and it's funny, I just watched Hereditary again this morning um, on the day of this record. And uh, it's it's interesting that it's like, I had actually, I it didn't even, when, after I'd seen Hereditary, I went back and, as I was running my review, and read up on what else uh, Ari Aster made, and it's like, it didn't even occur to me that just, I had actually seen one of his short films, like, years ago, and reviewed it. And it's like, it was another story of dysfunctional family. It's a very different story of dysfunctional family. It's not horror, it's dark comedy. Uh, but it's the same type of thing, and it's completely bonkers and brilliant. And it's like, that's one of the things. So, yeah, I mean, and that's... And I think and you're you're right as far as genre um, just now sort of being a, more, a little bit more accepted as you can do something more personal in there. And I think that, uh, like, some of the classics, uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still and stuff helped because it had a message, and I think... I think the popularity of Star Trek had something to do with that. I yeah. Think. And I think the fa- the idea of uh, films like Star Wars, which aren't really as message-heavy, still becoming popular is what helped yeah. ease it. Well, so I don't think like at the time it would have been accepted, but uh, I think I think it had to go through this metamorphosis. We mm-hmm. had to get comfortable with the idea of a generic message before we could get comfortable with the idea of a personal one. Because it's... it's um, Let's take the theory of the public and the personal sphere. The public sphere is much more in, uh, much more open and broad than the personal sphere. Yeah. So it's it makes absolute sense psychologically that we could open up first to the public sphere of a message that's not directed at anyone or from anyone. Yeah. Then we can open up to the idea of the artist actually presenting a personal message. Because remember, the auteur theory didn't come about till the sixties. I was just about to bring yeah. that up too, because of oh, now. So I mean, that's that's not to say that you know Truffaut or Godard would have necessarily seen, put Edward in the same context that they do Orson Welles or Hitchcock. But I mean, certainly, and you're absolutely right because of the fact that we didn't have the idea of the auteur theory, the director as author yeah. of a film. Um, you know, it was still very much considered by committee, even if you knew particular filmmakers' names like Hitchcock, like Capra, like and Wells. Let's let's point out that directors weren't particularly important really until Hitchcock. Yeah. That wasn't an idea that people took that, oh, this is a film directed by. Yeah. It was it starred blank. 
mm-hmm. and occasionally so, new producers. Like, um, quick, off the top of your head, name the director of any Val Luton movie. Uh, well, Jacques Tenor. Well, okay. and I've I've watched I've watched most of them, so it's but, like I like I've watched and reviewed okay, most of them. Okay, let's get a late so person like... in here. We got to pause the cast. <laughs> One second. Um, okay, so you're a bad example for this, but Three like days even later. even among most film fans, they know Val Luton's movies, but they they know uh, more Cat for People the producer and, than the director. Right? Yeah, he yeah. is the name you put on the DVD sets, right? Because he's the the name that you can sell, right? And and the fact of the matter is, he is he was ultimately the real author of those films. I mean, you have filmmakers like Val Luton and Mark Robinson and Robert yeah. Wise who worked on those, but ultimately they were at the service of Val Luton's vision. And I need to correct my statement. America In America, this was a new concept of directors. Right. European directors, totally a thing, have always been a thing since movies came to Europe. Yeah. I mean... And <laughs> even the, the first directors who were stars, like... Uh, Chaplin and Keaton and all mm-hmm. that, you know, they were stars because they starred in the movies, not because they directed them. Right, right. And even though, like, their um, their vision is very clearly seen, we didn't think of it in those terms. No, you and, and the thing is, it's like you were, when, especially in the early days, it's like you weren't necessarily thinking of filmmaking as anything more than just entertainment. It was solely for entertainment you weren't necessarily looking at a larger personal expression right and that didn't really that didn't even really come through until years later well i mean there's so much of that was especially at first was come inside we have air conditioning and snacks yeah and just be entertained for a little while which is also matt's way he's got me to date him (laughs) come inside i have air conditioning and snacks there was a van involved (laughs) <laughs> no, there wasn't. He couldn't afford a van. No, no. But the, this concept of um, the cast, or rather the crew being important, so, you know, include the director, of this being a vision as opposed to an experience. Right. Is, is relatively new, and it's even new nowadays because you still, like, you see people who are, younger than us, who are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how personal this was. Whereas they, you know, talking about like Orange is the New Black, which is based yeah. off of, you know, a, a, a biography in mm-hmm. essence. Um, not realizing that personal ideas have been in every film they've seen that's gotten popular in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, but we were raised on, you know, Back to the Future and things that didn't really have that personal narrative until we delved into it. Yeah. You had to be a nerd to care mm-hmm. about the director's vision. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, like, uh, I remember, I, th- I think it was Fred Decker, I think he said that Robert Zemeckis is a magician, and sometimes he makes a whole movie just because he wants to do one trick. Mm-hmm. You know, and <laughs> but that's still a, a valid way of doing things. Like, this is something that I love, and I want to put it out there. This right. podcast is sponsored by Fred Decker's School of Magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently, he was a magician as a kid, by the way. I thought you'd want to know. But, yeah. Um, see, this is the shit that just comes out of me. <laughs> Bailey was not kidding. Uh, just don't get him started on Song of the South. Yeah, you don't have that kind of time. That's another podcast oh, wow. for another, yeah. day, another show. It was the first time I'd ever actually ignored Matthew while he was talking. <laughs> We're in a bookstore, and I finally just kind of sit down, <laughs> and I pick up a book, and I just kind of, mm-hmm, 
yeah, that's a good idea. A kindergarten teacher, the whole thing. Like, you're so mm-hmm. smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you put up the newspaper in front of you. Yep, I'm watching. <laughs> I promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do love that this is a concept that we now have as filmmakers, as as idealistic filmmakers, as perspective filmmakers, yeah. that we can take our heart, kind of rip it out, cut a little part of it, and put it in that film. Mm-hmm. And that that's the spice that makes our film interesting. Well, and you know, uh, Hitchcock is a great example because so much of the things were based off things that were personal to him, like the fear of authority figures. And yeah. The fear of being uh, innocent but blamed for something. You know, NWA was quoting Hitchcock when they made their their major hit. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, probably paraphrasing, I imagine. But yeah, like, uh, but that's still you know taking these uh, silly broad adventure movies and putting something personal into it to kind of ground it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I kind of love how even something like North by Northwest, which is just big Technicolor fun, still has that idea of yeah. menace underneath it. Mm-hmm. But uh, shall we uh, jump into Bride of the Monster for a moment? Or uh, we can. Where do you want we to can, run from here? Um, you tell see, us what I'm, to do, Brian. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out where to where where to go from there. Uh, we we can we can touch a little bit on Bride of the Monster. Admittedly, it's been a little bit since it's, I've watched um, it. Well, I, you know, so much of the really interesting stuff is covered in the biopic. So yeah, but it's my favorite of Ed Wood's films, mm-hmm. and it's the arguably the best one like the one that's most coherent aside yeah. from maybe night of the ghouls yeah and i think night of the ghouls is now my favorite now that i've seen it i i really really enjoyed it but <laughs> i love how uh, i love that there's Thank you, uh Brian. that paul marco's character is in each of these movies mm-hmm. and i love that there's this recurring plot and but i paul love Marcos that he made a sequel <laughs> yeah like <laughs> that was destroyed by lightning yeah <laughs> old willow's place yeah um and but I kind of love that these movies show that he had something like he, given the right kind of encouragement, he maybe could have nourished it into yeah. something really wonderful mm-hmm. or something just more coherent. But well, it makes yeah. me think of John Waters. Like John Waters' early early films, um, full I of can't, passion, full I of can't ideas. believe we've paid money for because they are. <laughs> Just abysmal. Like, this is one of the few instances where I'm like, you know, pirating could be okay. But um, <laughs> but John Waters, when giving a little bit of nurturing and giving him a budget, makes some really personal, interesting, out-there film. And I wonder if that could have been the same trajectory yeah. that what like, could have had. The difference between um, a Desperate Living and Polyester is huge. And that was just a couple of years. And let's let's mention my absolute favorite, you know, Cecil B. Demented. That is a film that actually mainstream people like, like not just super nerds. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, I love, and also like something like Hairspray or Crybaby, I kind of love the idea that that same sense of humor and that same sense of uh, the dark and the weirdness is still there, but it's palatable and loved by teenagers. And, yeah. You know. I love that these things translate. I'm just thinking of our niece. Oh, goodness gracious. I know. <laughs> we, we have a niece that's, uh, well, you know how we talk about movies earlier that's not good, but it's fun? 
Mm. She's not bright, but she's not stupid. <laughs> she exists in a strange another world. Strange. And so when we were talking about John Waters movies to her, she was like, oh, I've seen Hairspray. I'm like, well, did you see the one with John Travolta? Did you see the one with Harvey Pierce? With Divine, yeah. With Divine. And she goes, saw a movie. <laughs> like, just completely baffled her that there were actually two versions yeah. of this movie. But... Um, I think that Bride of the Monster, if if somebody had given it a little time, a little time to sculpt it out, just a little mm-hmm. more money, just a little more money, a little more time, that it could have been an absolutely wonderful movie, mm-hmm. and it's still good and it's fun, but well, yeah. And this is something I was talking about with Bailey a while back with MST3K. My favorite movies on that show are the better ones. Yeah. Like some of the stuff like Manos is interesting to see and it's a fascinating kind of experience. But the show isn't really that funny because they're just kind of grappling with <laughs> what the hell do I do with this? Yeah. But I love like I accuse my parents in this island earth oh. and mm-hmm. I, the the better the movies on that show are, the more fun it is because they're just kind of filling in the gaps. Yeah. And they're pointing out the zipper on the back of the monster mm-hmm. and they but it's more like this is actually a pretty solid movie and we're just going to have a little fun with it. Right. Yeah, and I I will say um, it's been years since I've seen Brow of the Monster, so I can't necessarily speak on it uh, specifically. I I will say that stretch when they're filming in in Ed Wood uh, does have one of my all-time favorite lines, and I'm sure line I I quote at least once or twice on uh, one of the films I was making where uh, Bella Lugosi goes, all right, let's shoot this fucker. Uh, one of my friends wrote that in my yearbook, senior year. <laughs> yeah, like it's... And that, uh, by the way, uh, Alexander and Karaszewski's screenplay is so quotable. Mm-hmm. Like every Oh, absolutely. Every yeah. word of it is Yeah, perfect. I think that and when uh, Bunny says when they're getting baptized, it's like, I want to hear you call Boris Karloff a cocksucker. <laughs> I think we know your favorite line. Uh, no, actually, let's shoot this fucker is my favorite line yeah. in the biopic. Because um, we have all been on that set yeah. where you've waited 40 minutes for people to come in from out of town. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, somebody decided, I need water. And you're finally just like, all right, let's shoot this fucker. Come on, yeah. we can do this. Uh. Now, one uh, side note that might be interesting. Uh, Bride of the Monster was Ed's only financially successful film. Hmm. And one of the producers... It made $7. uh, (laughs) Samuel K. Arkoff. And Mm. he used that to to found American International Pictures. Okay. And so all all those Corman movies Mm -hmm. are in some way to thank. uh, Wow. uh, You have Bride of the Monster to thank. For the post cycle and 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 we brought up Corman on more than one occasion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This so this behind time. every Corman, there's an Ed Wood in a dress. Uh, well, probably in a dress. Maybe, maybe just uh, uh, you know, just I, the I, undergarments. I, maybe I, I'm actually gonna just think that he's in the little um, you know dance outfit. Oh yeah, <laughs> just kind of inspiring, maybe posing. And I love um, I, I love knowing that you know this uh, one filmmaker who spawned the career of every major director yeah. who's alive yeah. now basically uh, got a start because of Ed Wood. 
Yeah. Like, I love that uh, sometimes uh, things really do run on time. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm fascinated. That's by not true. There are no things that run on time, Matthew. Not in the entertainment industry. Oh, yeah, that, that's probably <laughs> true. But I, I do love that, you know, um, without that, you know, like we wouldn't have Scorsese or Ron Howard yeah. or anybody else. You know, in some weird way, mm-hmm. Ed is kind of the patron saint of all of these. Yeah. And and I think that's one of the things where it's like, I, that's, that's why he's, I mean, even with, I didn't even, I didn't know that about uh, Brad the Monster spying American International. And then, but I mean, I know American International produced Corman and stuff like that. I mean, I just rewatched Mask of the Red Death, which boom, was boom, from... Boom. Him from that era. <laughs> well, and I love how these things connect because apparently part of what uh, drew uh, Tim Burton to the script was the uh, the friendship between Ed and Bella reminded him of his con- his friendship with Vincent Price. Yeah. So there's a, a yeah. where it kind of loops back on itself. Mm-hmm. And, Sorry, uh, you got me a little overclubbed. <laughs> yeah, and um, obviously, you know, Vincent Price was in a much better place in his career and his right. life. Uh, but, you know, he had just died the year before. And yeah. They had done a series of in-depth interviews for a documentary that's uh, mm-hmm. not going to ever be finished. And, yeah. You know, and there's this really personal attachment there. And I believe that's why they sent him the script in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the idea was, like, I if think he'll If we make him cry, this. he'll do it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and I don't know if you knew about this, too, also, but uh, Elliot Gould of Simpsons fame... He uh, became friends with Mela Nermi, or Vampira, later in her life, and was kind of a caretaker towards her. Okay. So it's one of these things where these things cycle in a way. Like hmm. one person... I just realized how we're going to get to make a film. We need to find a dying celebrity. <laughs> we need to find our own Heraldoid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Come fund my movie with your rich doctor money. money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, as um, everything in our life it comes back around to Futurama. Yeah, yeah. Um, Futurama or Twin Peaks quotes come up distinctly, <laughs> and it's just the way it is. Um, actually, um, but it's it's beautiful how those kind of things come together, how it all kinds of cycles together. That Ed Wood could be considered the nutty grandmother of our modern genre films. Yeah. <laughs> And it's amazing how, uh, to get sort of a thing that feeds off your earlier question, uh, how acceptable genre films are now. Yeah. Like the fact that last year's Oscar winner was a monster movie mm-hmm. and the best original screenplay was, while it was a uh, obviously uh, a pointed racial critique, in the end, it was kind it's of a also a genre film. Movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's I mean it's it's creature from the Black Lagoon meets B movie. Yeah. Well, and I, I love, and less creepy. Yeah. <laughs> and I I love that these things which we used to sort of hide and forget about and put under the closet mm-hmm. are now gaining some level of respectability. Yeah. And um, one of the highest grossing films of last year was It, which I know is technically a remake, but it was still a really solid horror movie yeah. with really great performances, especially mm-hmm. from kids. It is the golden yeah. age of my genre. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it's kind of marvelous because mm-hmm. I love the idea that these uh, filmmakers are getting a shot with some actual money. And yeah. 
a chance to connect with audiences. So, Brian, when are we going to do our Doug Jones podcast? Because <laughs> that needs to happen. Mm. <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't that it? That would be. Oh, getting to watch so many Doug Jones movies. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I will watch The Shape of Water twice a week for you. I can I can do that. <laughs> so how in-depth do we want to go? Do we want to we find the Mac Knight commercials and Hocus Pocus, or do you want to just stick with modern stuff? I, I'm actually thinking I should show Brian that Wendigo episode of Fear Itself. That Doug Jones shows as himself for a while. I showed you that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Doug Jones play uh, actually does not have makeup on yeah. for a part of the episode. It's, oh wow! It's my, but um, do you know the Legend of the Wendigo? No. Uh, basically, if you say accidentally eat one of your fellow humans, that uh, a spirit comes into you and makes you bad. <laughs> Um, you're corrupted by the corrupted flesh. Mm-hmm. So it actually, the, the portrayal in this has Doug Jones kind of slowly decaying and becoming mm-hmm. this monster. And so it's a subtle transformation for him, but it's it's absolutely inspired. It's beautiful, and it's one of the few good episodes of Fear Itself. <laughs> there's a reason Fear Itself didn't have a second season. <laughs> Which is a shame because there's a lot of passion in that series too. Yeah, and I mean this this is what I do in my spare time is I watch less beloved horror things to try to find the the prettiness, the joy yeah. in them, the passion, and uh, but and that's part of the reason I love Edward so much. Why mm. I love Tim Burton because Tim Burton's become on that less beloved genre. Yeah, these these directors that take their heart and put it. And in their heart's a little black and a little a little crusty, but they take it and put it into a film and tell us a story that's unique to them, but is relatable to everyone. Yeah. Well, and I love, um, I'm always on the lookout for something unique and strange. I remember mm. uh, we've, we've all worked at the movie theater at one Add point Add your or strange another. picks to the comments. And uh, <laughs> one, um, one time, uh, A Dangerous Method was out for like a week, the Cronenberg yeah. film, and I was... Uh, one of my coworkers got to see it, and I didn't get the chance. And oh. so I was asking her, you know, how was it? She's like, that was weird. I'm like, weird how? She's like, I don't know, just weird. Didn't we just watch that? No, we watched Hysteria, oh, which wasn't okay. very good. No. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where, like, I was trying to explain. Like, I, I told her a little bit about, like, Videodrome. And I'm like, <laughs> so weird, like, a vaginal opening with a videotape? Or weird, just, like, weird how? She's like, I don't know, just weird. I'm like, you know, like... <laughs> So the idea that you tell me there's something strange out there I haven't seen, I'm interested. Yeah. And and just one final note on, on movies and strangeness. Um, these strange movies, say, are definitive for some of us, especially me. I grew up extremely awkward, re- you know, always interested in weird things. And seeing these things brought to film, such as Cronenberg's vaginal tummy videotape <laughs> holder, Seeing that someone else had weird ideas and could make them into something mm-hmm. that could be relatable to not just the awkward people, but to everyone, um, is part of the reason I love film as a genre. I love that we have this way to express our deepest, darkest fears to where the world can understand why we are the way we are. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'm also a big fan of Joe Bob Briggs, and I love his articles and when he used to host Monster Vision and stuff like that. I love the idea that he can take something that isn't great and find the good in it 
and mm-hmm. say, okay, well, most of this movie is kind of trash, but there's like three great scenes you have to see. Yeah. Or at the same time, he can take something that's really good but a little goofy and still make fun of the goofy parts and still find the joy in the rest of it. I And, you know, um, Monster Vision was a big part of why I became a horror fan because in these in-between segments before the commercials, we would get little tidbits that told me about other films I need to find. Mm-hmm. And instead of just like, okay, this guy made this one movie, okay, I learned about something else he did, and then the story behind that, and it just sort of blossomed into this really intriguing thing. Yeah. And he became the human encyclopedia of film that he is today. (laughs) For better or for worse. Now, ask me about any bad horror film from the 70s to the 90s, and I can give you a list of every detail there is to be about it, but (laughs) Matt has got a little less specialty. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm special. uh, My specialization is in different decades than yours, but Mm. yeah. Like a lot of blood and carnage. <laughs> oh, and tits. Don't happy. forget tits. Oh, I do like tits. The thing that can make a film successful. <laughs> the thing that made the kindergarten teacher interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what we said. There are tits in a movie called The Kindergarten Teacher. Go check it out on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really awkward movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> have, you, have you seen it? I have not seen it. Oh. I would not and recommend Hmm. (laughs) um if you know you're in for an awkward time it's pretty well made but it's it's yeah and it's another case of i'm pretty sure there is a personal vision in this film that there is a story deeper than the story we're being told but it is remarkably uncomfortable it is as uncomfortable as the head scene in hereditary uncomfortable yeah, and but it's for an hour yeah. and a half. Of but that. it's imagine that <laughs> sort of discomfort spread out over Just the whole. Over mm. and, out. and it's a short film comparatively to what we're putting out lately. Yeah. But um, to to bring it back to our main focus, it is a personal story. Mm. It is it and it is definitely a film that is trying to tell us something very important without spelling the message out necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is that all art. Um, is kind of an open uh, circuit and you need the audience to complete it. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to take something different from it and that might not Unless you're Darren Aronofsky. He does not need us. No, no, no. <laughs> like, there are a couple of people that uh, tell you exactly what they want you to get out of it. But for the most part, um, you know, we talked about this with David Lynch. I love yeah. the idea that... Um, you know, it's open to interpretation, and <laughs> it, the film needs the audience um, in order to um, <laughs> be complete. It needs our interpretation. Sorry, there's a lizard. There's a lizard on the window, <laughs> and Bailey is transfixed. If there's a lizard in every one of our hearts, there, there is. Um, I just imagine a listener going, what kind of Mickey Mouse bullshit is this? <laughs> I am a cat, guys. I have a human shape, but I am a cat. If there was a red dot in here, I wouldn't have talked this whole thing. Um, but to to thank you, Brian, for inviting us to come no in. No problem. And no problem. I I'm so happy we got to talk about film and personal expression. Yeah. And it's something we, we need to, you know, people dismiss people who love pop culture. Yeah. They dismiss us as not having our own opinions. But as I saw recently in a, a post about millennials, which 
Uh, I hate the term. Yeah. But we have not been given these clear definitions of who we are as other. We don't have the same points like getting married, getting a house, having kids. We Mm -hmm. don't have those. So where we find our meaning is piecemeal as we can. Pop culture and film and, and music and things that we experience teach us who we are as people mm-hmm. now. And Ed Wood was very definitively one of those people. He taught us who he was and his landmarks through his films. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and um, and Tim Burton is obviously the same way. I yeah. remember reading that he felt very close to Ed Wood because a lot of the shooting locations were around Burbank, California, where he grew up. Mm-hmm. So he recognized the cemetery. He recognized uh, Griffith Park. Yeah. He recognized these places, and this felt like home. Mm-hmm. And I remember Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 had a similar effect to me because most horror films are set in a small town because it's relatable. Mm-hmm. But with this one, like that town's just like an hour away from <laughs> where we are right now. And uh, I recognized some of the styles of house and some of the shape of the trees. Yeah. Like, wow, this is home. Okay, you know, and it relates on a deeper level than just like mm-hmm. something that's, uh, you know, um, British Columbia dressed to look like New York. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I definitely, I definitely had that uh, type of experience around this time last year when I finally watched uh, the Errol Morris documentary Vernon, Florida, for the first time. Hmm. It was his second film after Gates of Heaven, and. The it's just it's about this very small town and it's basically just a town with a road through it and yeah. just talking to the people in this town and it remind me of the uh, town that I lived in up in Ohio before we moved down to Georgia and I just had this this sense of identification with these the these people and their lives and the way their the rhythms of their lives and the way their lives when that just really touched on me on a personal level that I didn't necessarily expect. And that's, that's one of the things that I think great filmmakers are capable of, you know, whether they're making great art, like somebody like Earl Morris or somebody who is a little bit more flawed, like Tim Burton or somebody who really doesn't uh, have, has the passion, but doesn't necessarily have the resources to bring it to full fruition like Ed Wood and uh I feel like almost like Ed Wood is someone speaking French living in America he can (laughs) he can express how he feels very clearly to himself yeah but we might not necessarily be able to understand more than a couple words Mm -hmm. well and um I don't know necessarily that everyone in his circle got it either yeah but they clearly didn't care too much it was just Mm. Um, That's it. I I love yeah I, <laughs> um, I love that sense that he built a family around himself of other misfits and I love that he was able to gather these people together and and you know like at the time Vampire was relatively famous and Criswell was famous but mm-hmm. there were other people who were on the other side of it like Lyle Talbot when he was in I believe Leonard Linda was in a similar shape to Lugosi like he was getting paid in cash for like insurance purposes because they wouldn't hire them yeah like i love this notion that you're able to take people from different levels and find a bond yeah 
and and that's one of the and that's ultimately one of the things that I think is resonates most strongly with me about Edward. That's one of the reasons I like so much of the different uh movies and TV shows and stuff that I like is the idea that these these communities of misfits that come together and create something special and have this bond that goes beyond uh some of the things that we're typically we we typically associate with success and life and art and all of that and that's one of the things i think is so beautiful about edward's life and also whether you're talking about as brought to the screen by tim burton or by his life in general uh, with all that being said, um, I think this is a pretty good place to wrap it up. Uh, it's been a really great uh, discussion about Edward, about cinema in general, about a lot of different uh, topics in regards to, that come out of that discussion of Edward and uh, just sort of bring with him being, putting him more in a context as an important filmmaker in his own right, even if his films weren't necessarily as great as we typically look at important filmmakers as. Um, with that being said, thank you very much to uh, Matt and Bailey for uh, joining me tonight, thank today. You. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely do this again. I I know you and I have talked about doing Hitchcock, Matt, and uh, that's a discussion I definitely want to do at some point. Um, just and down the just, film list. Oh my yeah, goodness. I know. Uh, and just uh, you know, just just talking. I always enjoy just talking about movies and things in regards to movies. I mean, that's one of the things I like about this discussion that we just had is that it covers a pretty wide. Uh, Swath, yeah, and uh, that's a very good word, and uh, it also that, with that we <laughs> that that we also don't necessarily get to talk to talk about on a regular basis if we're talking about um, some of the more important films or just uh, filmmakers in general. So I think that the borderline mediocrity of Ed Wood's films leaves a lot of interpretation, which we don't get with better films. So this was a great opportunity to take something something planted in, in somewhat poor soil and let it bloom into something beautiful, like mm -hmm. like with you know, the Corbin films coming out of this. With uh, This is a great opportunity for us. Thank you so much, yeah. Brian. You're awesome. No problem. And that's one of the things I want to do with, that's one of the things I've wanted to do with this podcast is just, so much of what you hear nowadays as far as movie discussion is just us versus them as oh, far yeah. as like you know confrontational and just arguing about every little damn thing and, and uh just just the idea of people having a conversation where you know we can just talk about different topics and well, just and I, really I, I identify heard other uh, film podcasts and I won't call anybody out because they're you know doing the work too but a lot of there's a lot of other film podcasts where they just watch the movie and you can tell they got all their trivia off IMDB and they're just kind of reciting it but there isn't really a conversation and yeah. like I guess 
if you're new to uh, a certain genre or something, that can be helpful, but it's not nearly as interesting to me because I can look that stuff up myself. So, mm-hmm. so let me be hipster here and a little elitist. They're talking about movies. We're talking about all right with with that i am piecing out and letting brian finally close his cast (laughs) so uh thank you very much to matt and bailey uh it was great to have this discussion uh coming up on the podcast have some more uh film individual film discussions before hanging into a very busy uh 2019 with the podcasts that um, I I I hope I will be able to uh, survive the workload I'm about to give myself in discussing about the movies of 1999. But uh, check me out on the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. This is Brian Scuttle for the Sonic Cinema Podcast, and thank you very much. Mm-hmm.